I have to stay connected and I have to try to bridge these two worlds because that's who I am and who I've always been. But like, it's just kind of grown and become a career on one end. And then also, you know, carrying on this beef cattle legacy that I grew up with. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. COVID is changing our food system and it's exposed vulnerabilities, but at the same time, it's kind of turned us back to the importance of the food that we grow here and buying local, but it's left a lot of us with questions. Is our food system something that we can trust? You know, we heard about meat shortages and problems with, you know, meat processing what was really going on behind the scenes? We tackle that and a lot of other really big picture stuff this week with beef rancher from Benj, Washington, Bridget Kuhn. She's our guest again this week. This is part two of our conversation. If you want to hear some of her personal backstory and how she got to where she is now, uh, make sure to check out last week's episode, episode 29. That's part one with her. This is the second half of that conversation. And whether you've listened to that first half or not, there's a ton of gems in that, that come up in the conversation this week about what's really happening with our food system and what the truth really is about how our, our food is produced here in Washington state and in this country. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop. These are crazy times that we live in with everything that's going on in the world right now. And again, it's it's leaving a lot of us with questions. And that's part of the focus of this podcast is to get some answers. And we do some of that this week. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And we pick up right here where we left off last week with Bridget Kuhn uh, around her kitchen table in Benj, Washington. So technically, what's your gig now? Is it just basically freelancing stuff or what, what do you do? So I... Aside from the ranch stuff. Yeah. Your other work. So... um I held on to sort of that, um, you know, employment level situation with the beef commission until about 2017. Mm -hmm. And that was after having two kids. And, um, it was just really hard to be performing at the level that I wanted to be in that job. And then, um, not shortchanging the family, not shortchanging the kids, not a lot of like childcare options out here if you haven't yeah. noticed. And so I, I tried to piece it together for a long time. And, and I think I finally just got to the point and it should be a pretty, it's like probably a pretty relatable feeling for a lot of women in my kind of, um, uh, my set that, uh, I just finally realized that it, I couldn't get up earlier and I couldn't put more effort in and I couldn't really control for, you know, sort of this ongoing feeling like I get to the end of the day exhausted but not really feeling like I did a great job being a mom and not uh, doing my job at the level that I'm used to doing because mm-hmm. I'm doing this work well before this arrangement. And um, so my what I do now just started with actually quitting, which is probably one of the hardest things, mm. hardest changes that I had to come to and stop being stubborn and realizing that this was the change that had to be made. But I just never really lacked for like work, you know, and yeah. that's kind of, you know, you're a farm kid, like just, you're just wired for it. You and find stuff to do. Y- people, if you someone knows that you can do something, it's just, you're gonna, 
you know, get that um, opportunity. So uh, what started with quitting parlayed into actually just sort of, I can't do nothing. I don't have to do nothing. I just mm -hmm. couldn't do exactly what, what I, what they needed. And so um, it ended up being a contract to buy the digital advertising, which mm -hmm. is something I had, had already been doing for the commission. And so still getting to do a lot of that work, but it's just a sliver of it. Um, and then it took less than months to get outreach from people I know in the industry that want to do more. They wanted to do more communication and more, um, what we call having a digital footprint, I guess. Yeah. Um, and using, you know, email communication instead of just newsletters and, you know, all these things that, um, most organizations that are smaller ag organizations don't have like the room internally to do. So, um, I basically had two clients from our, you know, from the, the beef or cattle world, you know, by that, you know, within a matter of a couple months and then, um, you know, have been approached. I've never pitched any work. And so I was reluctant to like call it a business <laughs> mm. um, or, you know, call it what it was. But um, it was really only this year that both my kids are school aged and we have a little school in Benj. It's like six miles away. The enrollment this year is higher than it's been in a while. 17 kids. I drove past it. Did it's you see it? quite small, but it looks like a very nice newish building. Well, they, they actually just did some renovations. <laughs> so oh, nice. sad about the kids not being in school right now. Oh, nice. It's like, cool. They actually, well, it's the time they hadn't, my husband went to school there, you know, in elementary oh, wow. school. And so, you know, he's pretty amazed at seeing that, that work that's just been done to, yeah. they got a small school or rural school grant and, and that work mm -hmm. was done this last summer. Um, but anyway, my kids, then we're supposed to be in school learning. And so I kind of had this window of six, seven hours in the day that I haven't yeah. had in seven years. Uh, and so my work just sort of kind of has ramped up, you know, naturally. Like I said, I haven't pitched anybody. I haven't, I don't, right now I'm just, I don't have more room for that. And I'm kind of feel like I'm somewhat, I put myself back in a familiar position <laughs> with this unexpected change of, of life where the kids were home before summer. I figured I could figure out how to, you know, shuffle a summer and get some help from, from family to make sure that I felt like they were having a great summer and I was still getting work done for my clients. Um, and then like I had my last work meeting off, you know, actually a, some, a new client that wanted to have some work done. And I've since shuffled that off to someone else. Cause there's just no way. Welcome to the COVID world. Yeah. So I guess I feel like I'm fairly well built for it because I've been down this road and it's just things that I'm used to navigating. I work from home. Um, I'm comfortable with that. Um, but that that sort of abruptness yeah. didn't really leave room to you know, shuffle how, anything around. How much has COVID changed on, on the ranch here? Oh, nothing. Other than the kids being home from school instead of at school. Yeah. It's... I say short of nuclear fallout, like cows are going to get fed, yeah. water's going to get turned on, farming's going to happen. It's pretty easy to slow the spread when there aren't any, no. there aren't any other people for miles. There's just social distancing is our way of life. You know, I only <laughs> go to the store, you know, and even, yeah. the, you know, my husband was having to go for parts because you can't, you know, those, those uh, stores are open in order to support agriculture. So right. he could stop at a little store in Ritzville and grab groceries and I can limp along that, you know, I can limp along for a long time. I'm pretty crafty in the kitchen. I have a what, freezer full of beef. <laughs> what about with the markets and stuff? 
And then we've heard about all these, you know, beef or meat plant closures and like, what does that mean for you guys? And big picture, what's the truth about what's going on there? Yeah. So, um, obviously, um, we have an issue in our supply chain. So when this started happening and, you know, testing for COVID-19, um, testing around really any, any processing plants, um, but like food processing plants are about the only ones that were open still because right. they're essential. And um, so it's not like it's, it's a national or global problem at this point, but um, the, there was a, what was concerning, a concerning rate of COVID-19 cases coming from meat plants. And so those plants have been working with their like local health department and working within these CDC guidelines and basically working in, you know, to solve a problem to make sure that workers can process meat safely and not be transmitting COVID-19 to each other. So um, it's kind of one of those fix the problem while it's happening situations. And that has, that uh, started with slowdowns um, with the plants, you know, again, losing workforce because some, uh, some workers were sick and then also just figuring out how to, you know, reshape their operations to make them safer um, for their workers. And so some of that has resulted in, shutdowns and every time a plant shuts down essentially you've got ranches like ours feeding into feed yards whereby cattle are at a certain point they're ready they're ready for slaughter but if our capacity to process them is diminished for any reason in this case it's COVID-19 and uh, the efforts being done in the plants you have a backup of cattle Mm -hmm. and so then if you back that all the way up to the ranch level the opportunities to market your calves to a feed yard shrink because there's animals that are ready to leave. They're taking up space at the inn, so to speak. So you can't just have them keep hanging out here on the ranch? Can't. So, so at least from our perspective, and I like to say there's a million different ways to do it. You know, every ranch has the general um, responsibilities. Like we talked about managing land, managing animal health, making decisions about breeding and like doing that, swell that looks totally different here than it does up in Okanagan or over on the west side um so for our part we're usually kind of a we have the ability and we try to take the ability to be flexible in our marketing so when we market that at what weight do we market you watch the markets to see okay can we you know have them gain another couple hundred pounds here before they move on. Um, but that also depends on if we get enough moisture <laughs> uh, or we have enough hay to get through a a winter. I mean, there's so many factors. It's really kind of complex, but the main thing is that it's, it's, we're watching this all unfold. It's completely kind of unprecedented. It's not as if we're not used to markets going up and down, like anyone dairy, take Mm -hmm. any, any commodity, you know, and you're going to have that, but there is something weirder about that prospect of, well, I have buyers when I'm ready to sell because those buyers don't have orders because we have a back, we have a backup. We have. Well, and what's so bizarre about it is there's extra product meat in the system, animals. Yet at the same time, there are shortages and prices are going up for the consumer, and it's that breakdown in between. Yeah, that's causing the problem, people, like you described. People can't eat cattle; they eat beef, and so this right. is really an essential step in the supply right. chain. And so it is the right thing to do to do whatever it takes to ensure that people can do the work 
safely, that they can have their health. But how you actually accomplish that and not completely upend markets for people like us um, or the market for the consumer, uh, that can't, can't be understated how complicated and complex that is. And just challenging. And so I I had a chance to go into one of the plants here in Washington last week after they had been shut down for two weeks. They tested everyone that works in the facility. Mm. Um, And we got to go in and see the specific changes to their operations, all the PPE, all the, any of the new, um, you know, a lot of it was based around employee education and awareness and doing that in multiple languages that are spoken in a Mm -hmm. facility like that. Um, Again, I've been through processing plants several times in under normal circumstances. So it absolutely felt slow. Yeah. Uh, there's you're slowing down the speed and um, affording for, um, they don't have a lot of workers that are absent because they're ill, but there are workers that are, you know, not, you can't force someone to go to work and do this mm-hmm. work. Um, but most of the people we saw there were happy to be back at work after being gone there was like, you know, 100% use of masks and, um, you know, vinyl, vinyl partitions between those positions in the mm-hmm. processing line um, where people have to stand kind of close to each other. And I, I mean, I saw a lot of buy-in for the changes. Mm. And uh, from what I can tell and from conversations that, and just looking at the numbers on, on uh, weekly kill, we've definitely kind of gone, we've gone back up from this sort of inverse bell curve. And and so processing uh, capacity is up now that it looks like these interventions, again, it's kind of waiting and seeing if, if they will work to keep people healthy or keep people testing negative um, for COVID, but. Um, so what are we gonna see in the grocery store? So the, right, right Cause now, there's like a time lag, right? Yeah, like I yeah. was reading all these farmer tweets about how bad things were, but it didn't really hit you know, what I was seeing in the grocery store for weeks after them talking about these things happening, coming down the pipe, the pipeline. So some of the changes really are more, I'd say more nuanced for the consumer. Yes. There's gonna be some, some price increases because you just have, you have these distributors and retailers vying for a more limited amount of product supply demand 101. Um, So price is going to, you're going to see different prices, but you'll also see maybe a different selection of cuts. So mm. um, some of the extra processing, again, that requires extra people, people working next to each other, uh, and then slows the process down to get beef to the market or mm-hmm. to the to the retailer. Um, you'll have maybe roasts instead of steaks. Mm. And then, you know, you can actually cut most roasts down into steaks. So if people are willing to do it, <laughs> they're gonna get a value on Mind. a roast cut. Right. Uh, So, so it's really about if people can be, it's honestly, it seems like pretty minor adjustments for the consumer to make in order to still enjoy beef. Um, Grilling season is around the corner and um, we actually just came up with the, we're getting an infographic out there that's like called steak swap. And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, if you don't see a tenderloin, you can get the same eating experience out of a strip loin or New York strip steak. So if you see, don't see one in the meat case, but you see the other, you can still grill it hot, grill it to medium rare. So it's like the people in the store, buying at the store, are having to do some of the same learning that someone who might be buying direct, like we talked about earlier, will also have to be doing. I know I did that a while back. Well, just to back up a little bit, I grew up around the dairy farming world. 
both sets of my grandparents were in dairy farming. So our beef naturally was called dairy cows, which isn't the greatest beef in the world, but it serves its purpose. Grind right? it. That's yeah, protein, we had yeah. a lot of hamburger. Yep. And that was the thing. We never really did a lot of stuff with those other cuts. Then jump forward many years. This was just a few years ago. Local farmer was selling an animal and my my uh, family split it up between my mom and dad and I think my sister and brother-in-law and me and my wife. So we shared it. So we got a, a, you know, a, an assortment of cuts, some of which I knew nothing about, but in the era of Google. And I will say this, the era of instant pots. Giddy up. Yeah. There was some pretty amazing things that happened. And I'm like, hey, short ribs? Like, this is cool. I would have never, ever cooked that. But because of that experience, I did. And I think a lot of people are going to be like turning on to this kind of stuff right Entering now. Entering a new world of beef that yeah. you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Absolutely. I Like I said, that's... I, I find few silver linings to this situation. Like, I don't yeah. want to talk about it, think about it, because it makes me cranky. But I do, uh, I do see, I do like to see that. I like to see this opportunity for people to move beyond just, I don't know much, but I have this preference because that's what's trendy or that what's is, that's what's acceptable in this culture, urban culture that I live in. Um, but to actually dive in and be like, ooh, I would buy that, but I don't know how to cook it. And then starting to build that knowledge. Um, yeah, we are so focused on providing convenient products. And when the supply chain is working well, we can do that. Yeah. But when we have a hiccup like this, it is incredibly important that people start to learn more about food preparation. Just a very yeah. simple, basic concept. But it's so much easier with Google. And granted, you can get burned on bad tips on google just like you shouldn't get medical advice from well google's probably better for you know cooking advice than it is for medical <laughs> advice but it's like yeah there's no reason why you can't with some careful reading figure out how to do it and then like i said the instant pot thing you know you used to you know some of these cuts and the way you'd have to cook it you'd have to really get technical and you'd have to invest a lot of time to really do it right and when we have devices like that, it's kind of weird that I keep bringing this one little thing up, but it's become such a trend and everyone's like, oh yeah, I love my Instant Pot. First, I didn't really get it and then I got using it and now I love it. Of course, now it's air fryers apparently. Oh, uh, I've got both. That I've Instant Pots got... are like two or three years ago and now it's air fryers. and it's not, But for me, it was like, I can actually like cook this for dinner and not have to like start it at noon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, so think about that. You Then you're taking, um, you know, again, cuts of beef, for example, that are a better value as far as like price per pound is lower because it's not, you know, you're not competing with steakhouses and like high-end, right. you know, uses. Um, but people don't perceive them as that convenient because they are longer cooking time to get a really enjoyable, you know, meal out of it. But yeah, bring in the technology of an Instant Pot, which is just an electric pressure cooker. <laughs> And we're back, you know, I think of my grandmother a lot of times. She used a pressure cooker on the stove to do different things. Yeah. She made like tongue and like weird stuff. You know, we just always had yeah. like weird stuff. Um, but, you know. Using I, all parts of an I, animal though. And that's, so that's where, I mean, I, I hear a lot of this chatter and I have to pay attention to that based on my, my work in the industry online. Um, and so anytime like the rubber is actually meeting the road <laughs> on people 
going out there and that's some of the things that they're even then choosing to share. And then, you know, other people get the idea and they're actually practical, not just like, look at my very boutique steak I bought yeah. at Whole Foods. Well, there's a, susta- there's a sustainability angle there because you aren't just only using, like we talked about earlier, like people, oh, and they just get the ribeyes and the sirloins and then what happens to everything else? Grind it up in a hamburger, I guess. No, it gets used. And even things like tongue or cheek or all kinds of tripe for crying out loud. It, it all s- may sound gross, but you, uh, the trend of getting into more cultural foods and learning, you know, the foodie idea of getting into, you know, different cultural ways of preparing stuff like that that you normally wouldn't even eat at all. You know, I like I got into pho. Pho is my chicken soup. Am I really saying that right? I I always get criticized on how I say it. I'm not enough of a foodie to be really hardcore about it, but I do love it. And there, again, it has all different things that I I always get like, okay, get the adventurous one with all the the tendons and everything else in it because I want to experience that. But then all these other good things are happening because of it too. Oh, that I, stuff isn't just ending up in the garbage. No, and we don't usually have that. So, so that's where our exports are actually really important to our industry. And particularly here in the Northwest, we have access to Asia. Mm. And so as long as, you know, trade agreements wise, you know, that, that matters. But in general, um, there's a high demand for U.S. beef and different cuts that really yeah. generally U.S. consumers aren't jazzed about that we get a better value well, it's like people in other parts of the world just tend to be better at using more of the different stuff and getting and a little cuisine, bit more exotic yeah, they're just, they're, than just the sirloin steak. <laughs> their cuisine incorporates this yeah. type of thing. And so it's natural that that's a market for some of the parts that, you know, so that's why. I mean, there's just so much, you know, people are really kind of, I think, fairly quick to criticize in our supply chain and like, oh, it's all yeah. messed up and it's all big. And I'm like, yeah, but it starts with people like us and we don't have really a desire right now to feed cattle out because we'd actually have to truck feed here to get Mm -hmm. them to that prime choice, like, you know, great spot. And we don't really have a desire to safely process beef here. Right. Um, And so that's that specialized part of our supply chain that again, when it works, it works. And we have this really quality, high quality beef that just about anyone in our country can get access to and I think sometimes some of our like some of our higher ideals about knowing where our foods comes from and mm-hmm. uh, you know having um, opinions and having you know placing value like is a little elitist because mm. we can afford it. We talk about these things True. because we can afford it, but then only when <laughs> there's only a roast <laughs> that we've never cooked and we have an insupport, then we can start getting creative. Yeah. So I. Again, I try not to be hypercritical about it. I understand. I mean, I grew up in a school where like my brother and I were the token farm kids, you know, and I understand that like people don't have the awareness that I do about their food, you know, on this basic level. And so I, I would never like give someone a hard time about that. And I would never, you know, sort of think of them lesser because of that. Um, but I just would love it if people kind of didn't like skim past the, you know, these, ba- these basics. Um into like these opinions about our food supply. Totally. Um, Well, because with COVID and everything that's happening, what we just talked about with, you know, meat processing, people are saying, well, it's revealing cracks in our food system. It's showing how our food system is broken. You're saying that's not true. 
I'm saying that we should have, so what I'm, what I think it's not either or it's and, and so, yes, it's problematic when we have, uh, an issue in our food supply and then again, these ingredients. So whether it's a potato and onion or, you know, cattle that turn that are turned into beef can't get to people, but we have the raw product. Like, obviously that's a problem, but from what I can tell based on, again, this sort of inverse bell curve that we're working with on, um, the, how fast cattle are being slaughtered now, um, we're already kind of on the upswing of that. And so it's going to depress prices for people like us, but protein's still going to get to people. So I'm not, I'm definitely not one to like condemn it wholesale. Um, think about the other aspects of it. I think it would be awesome if we had more smaller processors that people could access like on the, the producers could access and then consumers could access from, but consumers will then need to change their shopping patterns and change their mm-hmm. kind of desires. Um, so really like our food supply has been led by consumer demand. Um, so if that demand changes, I believe that the beef industry as an example, agriculture in general can pivot and get, yeah. get uh, where people need us to be. But this is like one of those things that I get. Uh, it's been the kind of the irony of ironies to me growing up in the nineties in Western Washington, raising cattle um, around dairy farms or around us and everything. And as the suburban area grew, that's where like our regulatory framework and the stuff that makes it mm. hard and more costly to locally farm. And so our farming goes somewhere else. And so we, yeah, yeah like a lot of those guys, a lot of the dairy guys I knew came over here to Eastern Washington. Mm. Um, I think my grandfather called it at a good time because yeah. we were having a hard time, um, you know, as that valley filled with warehouses. And I don't really feel bad about that either because you're in between two major ports and freeway system and rail system. Like I'm not convinced that the highest best use of that land that we used to farm on isn't distribution warehouses. I may differ with people. I don't get super like sentimental about, even though it was good farm ground, we did it for a long time. Um, It's a little bit ironic to me that in the nineties, we saw this sort of exodus of farming and it make it hard, it being really hard for producers to stay local based on, neighbors coming in complain like complaining about everything from smell and well, and, and, and that's where everybody when they see these things and there are issues in our food system is as a broad umbrella term but the first people we need to look at whether i think we're and this is me getting on my soapbox just for a, a few seconds is whether we're a farmer a rancher or we're a consumer who lives in the city we all need to look at ourselves i think first because there, I think everybody can do things better, right? And and that's what we're lear- we're being forced to learn right now. I I love that, and I love that perspective because um, there is there's a lot of like a blame game kind of. Everybody else around. wants to, you know, farmers want to you know, say, oh, this it's is not fair. The consumers what, yeah. get all that. Far- Why are farmers? You know, yeah. they they've they created such a terrible food system. That's not, no, that's not what we're working with here. Yeah. It is. I, I truly believe it. I think with some ownership, it can do that. I just, I don't, I'm not asking for someone to own it, but it is ironic to me that the issues that we faced two decades ago, I, the same people are the ones that are like really hopping on the local food train. Yeah. The same people, if not like, you know, the, the next generation of people. Um, so 
I don't think those people even put they wouldn't put they wouldn't put that together and it's really obvious to me I uh I had to stop like it was several years ago but I was at some meeting and I love I love my I love my off ranch work because it gives me such a good perspective of Mm -hmm. not just it'd be really easy especially without internet like if I didn't have internet wait I couldn't (laughs) really I I need to have internet I do but uh I you could get pretty sucked into our level (laughs) Like in just our sector of our beef world, very easily. Um, but my my work has made me, and uh, and I've enjoyed getting out there and seeing all angles. Um, and yeah, there's just like really smart, really successful guys out here that are really surprised that a lot of their time, the amount of time and energy that they put in to communicating about how we raise cattle mm-hmm. to consumers this wasn't something that was obvious to them a couple decades ago and i'm sitting here like i wish 10 year old me could have gotten a time machine <laughs> like came here and told these guys out here because they weren't exposed to the seattle media i was right and you know these issues that we were facing already as farmers on what in western washington it, i was like nobody would they have wouldn't believed- have known they would nobody not would, have known nobody would have believed you though you think so i don't know like i just I think there are still people who are waking up to that, realizing, no, they need to share their story. They don't even realize what they have because it's all maybe that they've known. I know farmers who they've just been doing their thing and they have a great story to tell. What they do is pretty incredible, but they don't, they don't feel any sort of, they feel like, why do I need to tell anybody that? I just make food and, and people buy it and eat it, Right. Yeah. And I I can't fault them for kind of feeling that way either. And I'm not faulting consumers for like wanting to know more. And that's why, like I said, yeah. I feel like I've found myself in this spot and it can be frustrating some days. <laughs> and sometimes I just want to retract and yeah. like go hunt mule deer, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> yeah. in general, I try to stay connected and, and I have to stay connected and I have to try to bridge these two worlds because that's who I am and who I've always been. But like, it's just kind of grown and become a career on one end. And then also, you know, carrying on this uh, beef cattle legacy that, that I grew up yeah. with. So um, I, I feel like I try to give everybody on all sides a lot of grace and I yeah. use sarcasm to <laughs> vent off steam. I don't know. I love it because all these details are different than my story, but the theme is the same because I grew up a farm kid as well. Went off, did the communications thing and I'm really passionate about advocacy and and being a communicator, but still love this community that made me who I am, and it's still so important to me. So that's why I'm like that's that's the story of this podcast. That's why I'm doing it because I want to bring that together to tell these stories and do this storytelling, the communication, and connect people, but have it be about our food and the people who grow it. Wow, this is like. I hope we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> this made is like... some progress there. No, I think what's weird to me, if I'm thinking about this whole full circle situation and feeling like I'm back to my roots, but really doing that work to try to connect people. Um, I know I'm trying to figure out my strategy because my kids are growing up in this like rural environment. Yeah. And I knew I would enjoy rural life. And I knew that I, I mean, I feel very comfortable here, but I want to make sure, I mean, I grew up with people that were totally different. Their lifestyles were totally different. They didn't, you know, they lived in apartments or they, their parents worked at Boeing or, you know, whatever. I just, I always felt like I had a different setup than the people that I was around. And then out here, everyone around here is kind of rural. And 
I, I feel like really, I need to figure out a strategy on making sure that my kids, cause I think it's really, it's been beneficial to me to understand all different kinds of people based on how I was brought up. And I mm. have to figure out how to do that. And I actually, I feel like I have well, to actually have, have to try. It was natural for me. It was not yeah. my parents enough to try to do that. But, but that's, that's that healthy, right? For, for kids, for anybody to be around people from a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives. And that's part of our problem with the food system, with our political system is we're, we have these silos and, you know, there's the city and there's the rural and there's fewer and fewer people in the rural areas and more and more people in urban areas. And neither side listens to each other very well because they don't really understand. Yeah, we can be, you know, uh, so one of the cool beef commission projects that they do and I've gotten to participate in is um, collecting uh, chefs, meat buyers, bloggers, media, and go through um, and take them to a ranch, to a feed yard, and through the processing plant over mm. the course of two days. And yeah. it's fantastic. And we see what their opinions are before and see what they are after. And then it helps them network with our industry after, you know, they we build longer mm -hmm. relationships there. But what I find is I'm observing um, our tour hosts and the other people, the other rancher types that we bring along. So they're there to be a resource and there to answer questions is their feedback is that they get so much value from this opportunity to connect with that part of the supply chain. Cause they're not doing that on a regular basis. They're running a ranch or a and it, feed, it's, feed it's yard. It's supposed to be the other way around to it's, expose well, the point. The, well, the point yeah. is to like edu educate, you know, or at least, you know, sort of build that um, basic level of understanding. Yeah. So then they, on their restaurant menus, they're not like oversimplifying. Right. And they understand what it means. And they've know, actually seen yeah, it. It just makes it all better. It makes it better from start to finish, but it really, it's so beneficial. I take it for granted because through my work, I'm forced and I'm, and I enjoy it, but I am forced to stay connected with our consumer mindset and trends. I'm like the average rancher out here. I'm doesn't do it. Doesn't. Why would they do that? I mean, you only have so much space in the yeah. day and so much space in your brain. And in fact, that's probably my biggest challenge right now is figuring out how much, um, you know, in the digital space, obviously it changes and everything, you know, moves really fast there and having to stay on top of that can take a lot of energy and effort. And I need to, and on behalf of the people I do work for, but I also have, I mean, my husband and my father-in-law have been out here practically their entire lives. And I'm like always trying to catch up on knowledge, whether it's managing grazing or breeding yeah. or whatever. I feel like I, I grew up with cattle, but like that's the, and, and with a family, but that's the only similarity Yeah. <laughs> because it's a different family. Um, if you think about any issue, take water, obviously our water issues in Western Washington, completely different. So much different. Than yeah. We had, we have drainage and we have yeah. manure. And then here we have, you know, maybe 12 inches of precipitation all year. Yeah. Uh, and so managing water is like completely turned on its head and I'm, fascinated by all that and i want to be engaged in that and so i don't know like what uh where i'll go as far as like this ranch or my outside work i have my kids that you know it's awesome because they are sponges and they're absorbing everything they see and hear out here i i'm hesitant to complain about this covid situation because we have all this space and i have empathy for the person like in their house or in their condo with kids or without like right. day after day and they're, they're not used to working from home or whatever their situation is. I feel really 
thankful and like really blessed that this is mine. If anything, this is sort of like really life affirming to some of my yeah. life decisions that uh, sure. that we discussed. <laughs> um, those those kind of rash decisions <laughs> about a, you know nine years ago. I feel like I'm in a good spot if we have to be in a pandemic. Yeah, definitely. So what's the future? Um, like I think the future is, I, I just basically have an endless, um, just an endless pot of knowledge that I need and I want to have an experience I want to have here on our ranch raising beef and in the work I'm doing to try to connect people and using, you know, the digital space to do that. Um, I feel really fortunate that um, just some of the storytelling I've been able to do um, with these other farms and ranches um, that, that I've been in contact with them trusting me with their stories. I mean, that's really like I've done interesting things in my career, but that's definitely something that I feel most positive about. Like if I'm doing something that I think matters or, you know, is bigger than just here, bigger than myself, I really care about that. So, um, yeah, I don't know how much room I have uh, for either one. And I want to, I'm usually, I'm like kind of in this place where I'm trying to assess where my limited, I mean, 20 somethings don't understand like the value of time, <laughs> right? And energy <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and how finite that time and energy feels by the time you get to, I mean, this is only my perspective, so it's probably gonna sound dumb to someone older, but to your mid thirties with a couple of kids that grow rapidly and I'm just feel like I'm living in this space where I only have so much time and energy and I'm figuring out day by day, like how to use that. Budgeting. It's not just for money. It's yeah. Like adulting right? sucks. Adulting sucks because yeah. there is budgeting on all the things. <laughs> and I only have so much time and I got to figure out what I'm going to spend it on. I only have so much money and I got to figure out what I'm going to spend it on. Yeah. Things that they don't, didn't make you do in high school or college. No. And I mean, I don't know if you can, like I said, I don't think you can tell a 20 something. I don't think the most eloquently written, (laughs) you know, editorial piece about this topic from someone older would have, even if I was willing to read it, like reach me as a 20 something running around Capitol Hill, you know, just living my best life, working my butt off, but like also going to happy hour because I lived in a hovel a row house yeah and we just you know ate at the bar every night (laughs) uh so i mean i appreciate that having those experiences and i don't take it for granted but it's also feels so small compared to like what i'm trying to accomplish here with our family with our ranch like with my work so i think that's probably a good spot to be in i'm not like i don't i never am sitting back being like glory days yeah uh sure so uh yeah, if anything, I, I do feel like I've taken experiences that I was given earlier on and, you know, just try to keep applying them to be more useful to the people around me. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing so much about food and beef as well as your personal story, which, I mean, really resonates with me, but I think, you know, overlaps with a lot of people's experience, particularly in our generation of you know, going through multiple careers and kind of having to reinvent ourselves and, you know, morph with technology as it develops. I mean, we were the kids that grew up with normal TV and telephones on the wall and things like that and had to learn this all as it came about, right? Yeah, so I I try to even, like, put 
put myself in a younger person's perspective yeah. where there's like my son knows how to log on to probably like a dozen different websites by the time he was five. And because the internet has always been a thing. It's always been a thing for them. And they don't, it's awesome because they don't watch commercials. We noticed yeah. that whenever we had some, <laughs> we have YouTube TV record cutters, you know, yeah. uh, we actually have freakishly fast internet out here. Thanks to my husband. It's not common out here. In fact, I Lucky. think if there is, <laughs> right. If there's anything that, um, like I'm passionate about maybe going forward, if I was going to try to make an impact locally, it would absolutely be kind of diving in and seeing if there's a way to promote better connectivity in rural areas, because how do we expect farmers and ranchers to connect with consumers, yeah. whether it's to get these sort of direct marketing opportunities, like we talked about, or just getting that, sharing that real, like these are real families. Yeah. This is a real process you know, not, you know, sort of adding complexity to people's understanding of our food supply. And for these rural rural kids like yours to be able to have different experiences and different connections. Right. And- so I do, I wonder about, and in this context where everyone is just home, home, there wasn't, you know, maybe some folks are going into town <laughs> to rip off a little internet at the library or <laughs> like a cafe or something. And yeah. that's not even, that hasn't even been a thing. Um, so I, I do think that's important. I'm not trying to be pioneer woman, you know, or like, you know, I do some weird stuff. I make kombucha. Like I do weird stuff. Yeah. Like I do things that are kind of, you know, off grid, but I don't, I absolutely value that connectivity. And I think that if we want these rural areas to be healthy going into the next generation, um, you're going to want to have the infrastructure that an average person um, would expect to have. And especially if you want like new people or like some new energy yeah. uh, to come in, let's get, we, you got to have some internet. Totally. Like satellite dial, like satellites, not cutting it. And that's what I think a lot of people around us have satellites still. Yeah. And um, it just doesn't cut the mustard. So yeah, I for, love- for those of us, it used to be people in cities didn't realize how much they had to, you know, they were taking for granted as far as connectivity. Now it's almost anywhere on the West side. Because I don't live in a city, but I'm now used to having, you know, at least two or three bars of my LTE all the time and unlimited internet on my phone. So I'm constantly connected. Yeah. And I get out here and it's like, wow, I drive for an hour and get signal maybe one time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as soon as I walk out my porch, we use two-way radios to kind of communicate yeah. and make sure someone's not dead like out, out in this, this expanse because we just don't have that. And so, yeah, there's a public safety. There's like a, there's just sort of a, um, it's an, it's an issue that I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know, public, private, whatever. I haven't really even skimmed the surface, but I think I wouldn't be doing everything that I should be doing if I don't kind of dive in and use some of my, you know, affiliations and, Mm -hmm. and some of my work, uh, and some of my energy to get that, make sure that it's the awareness is there. Like you said, it's the awareness is that that's a world yeah. that people live in that isn't as connected. Um, it's not like, oh, it's really expensive and people, we should be able to get access cheaper. It's like, no, <laughs> you could like make it rain yeah, and Benjamin's and you would not get any internet uh, <laughs> yeah. because we don't have the infrastructure available to you um, in 20, you know, in 2020. Crazy. We should, well, we should we're, work we're, on that. We're going to hold you to it. Well, I'll let you know I, what I, I come up with. I think we're going to have to have you back someday on the podcast and get a get an update on this. 
Well, I can probably, hopefully I can just zoom it from somebody, from like <laughs> my friends, from my friend's house that's on, that's on satellite right now. I don't, totally. I don't know. Well, thank you for, for opening up and sharing on the podcast. Thanks for coming to Benj. <laughs> it's awesome here. You may I not so. get, you might not get me to leave. So we'll, this we'll is have not an uncommon <laughs> shred of feedback actually. Uh, so we're, you're welcome back here anytime it, we can grill. Awesome. Steaks. <laughs> This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. Well, obviously I'm here now, so I did end up leaving Binge. But what a cool place in the middle of nowhere. Google it. Check it out on the map. See where Binge actually is. And, you know, there's not much there other than just a corner and a couple of buildings and a little schoolhouse. But a, a really cool conversation with... Bridget Kuhn, and she's up to so much stuff. I, My guess is she'll be back on the podcast sooner rather than later um, because she's got big things in mind and, and she wants to do so much more. Thanks for subscribing and following along here with the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and it is my mission with this podcast and with Real Food, Real People to reconnect the people who grow our food to all of us who eat it and to help heal our food system and a lot of the misunderstandings that cause problems in our food system. And, you know, we started this before COVID, but COVID has made that, I th think, even more important right now. Um, so let's stay at it. Please subscribe. Please follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram uh, to support what we're doing. Really helpful if you share the podcast um, on any of those social media platforms to bring more people into the fold. I feel like the more people we can bring into this conversation, the better we can make our food system, uh, the better we can become as eaters, and the better uh, our farming community can be in what they do. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.